you brought your Bibles, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to begin at verse 23 and read for about 10 or 11 verses, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23 says, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they uh, spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them, uh, neither said any of them that aught of the things uh, which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and for the many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for our church family. We thank you, Lord, for each one that you've sent our way. We thank you, Lord, for the roof you've put over our head, Lord, the nice cool building you've given us to come into, Lord, to worship you and to praise you in. We thank you, Lord, for the uh, nation that we live in, the freedom that we have to openly gather here, Lord God, without any kind of fear of persecution. We thank you, Lord, for all those who have sacrificed and fought and bled and died so that we could have this freedom. But we know ultimately it's a gift from you, so we give you all of the glory. And Lord, we just pray as we go forward here this morning, there is a lot of needs, Lord God. There's a lot of needs here amongst us. There's a lot in our community and in our nation and throughout this land, Lord. And so, Lord, we just come before you, Lord, and it doesn't even seem right to ask any more from you, Lord. We've already asked so much. But God, you tell us to cast our cares upon you, Lord God. And so, Lord, we, here we come, Lord, uh, with our own needs and our own burdens and with the burdens of a lost and dying world. And we come here to this, mor or this morning, Lord, seeking a move uh, of your spirit here amongst us here this morning. Lord, asking that you would just have your way and your will in our midst, Lord God. Lord, we really were seeking you for revival. And so, Lord, we're asking, Lord, that you would just, uh, Lord, that you would just pour out that old time Holy Ghost conviction upon us. God, that you would give us any peace until we would repent and get things right with you, Lord, that we wouldn't let anything stand in the way of our walk, our relationship 
with you. Lord, whatever it is that hinders us here this morning, Lord, help us to get it out of the way, Lord, so that we can serve you in a way that pleases you and brings you glory. Lord, my prayer this morning is, is that you would... Lord, we know you're the searcher of hearts, so there's nothing here that's hidden, nothing that you don't already know. So, Lord, I just ask that you administer the hearts of each and every one here this morning. God, lift them up, encourage them, draw them near to you. God, bless us here this morning. Bless your people. Lord, if there's any among us that's lost and undone, any that doesn't know you, any that are backslidden, any are not sure where they stand with you, maybe they're not even sure if you even are real or even exist. God, let today be the day that you make yourself known to them. Let today be the day that you reveal yourself to them in such a mighty, undeniable way. Let today be the day, Lord, that their hearts are pricked with your word. Lord, let today be the day they would repent and turn to you before it's everlasting too late. And we'll, and we'll rejoice with the angels and we'll give you all the praise and we'll give you all the glory because we love you. And Lord, I just ask one more thing of you here this morning. I need your help. I can't preach without you, and I know that. And Lord, so I'm just praying that you'd clear my mind of everything except for your message, your words, your thoughts. I pray that you'd forgive me of where I fall short. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me from on high. God, that you'd place on my tongue the very words you'd have me to speak here this morning, and I'll be sure and give you every bit of the glory for it. God, I'm asking for your anointing, your holy unction. Lord, have your way and your will in our midst. For we love you, we worship you, and we praise your holy name. And we ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I, uh, I did not read the whole story, uh, just for the sake of time. You would really want to go back to chapter 3 and begin reading at the first verse of chapter 3 to get the whole picture of what had taken place here. All right, so Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Okay, chapter 3 begins, and it's a little bit later, all right? A few days later, whatever, I don't remember. But anyways, it's a little bit of time. Church is just now being established. It says that Peter and John is going into the temple at the, uh, the hour of prayer. If I remember right, that would have been like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It says that there was a, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. That means that he was born unable to walk, paralyzed, okay? He, this, is, this is somebody who had never walked a day in their life. It says that they carried him daily to the gate called Beautiful so that he could beg alms. You see, things were different then than what they are now, right? There wasn't a, any kind of a social safety net. There wasn't any kind of welfare system. There wasn't any kind of charities or organizations. Not like we're used to, not like we see here in this country in this day and time, right? They didn't have things like that in that part of the world at that time. So if you were unable to work and provide your own food for yourself, uh, there was only... Two things left. Either maybe you are fortunate enough to be part of a family that had enough means and enough wealth that they could provide for you, or you had to beg. That was it. This man is carried daily 
of the gate that are going into the temple, right? The gate called Beautiful, there to beg just to get his daily substance, right? Just to be able to hopefully have enough to eat to get by. It tells us that on this one particular day, as Peter and John are coming up there, right? It talks about Peter, uh, uh, you know, looking upon him. And it talks about how this lame man, right, he, he's begging. When he sees Peter and their, their eyes, I can see the picture of their eyes, you know, kind of locking there, right? And he is expecting to receive something from Peter, right? He's, he's expecting because of, because of the look, the gaze. I mean, he just knew that Peter had something for him, right? That Peter was going to give him something. And so I, I figured that he figured that Peter probably had a little bit of money, right? Was going to toss to him and say, here you go, you know, go, go to McDonald's and get you a cheeseburger or, or, or maybe he had a sandwich, you know, or, or something. He was expecting something, you know, from Peter. But he wasn't expecting what he got. Right? What does Peter turn to him and say? Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee, right? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That is not what that guy was expecting. Right? That is not what he was expecting Peter to say or what to do. And the amazing thing is not that Peter said it. amazing thing is, is that he rose up and walked. It says that immediately from that moment, right, his legs and his ankles received strength. Right? These are legs that had no muscle in them whatsoever. These are bones that had no bone mass whatsoever. This is a miracle. This is not something that can be explained away in the natural world. This was a supernatural occurrence, which is any time when God enters into our world, our realm, and intervenes, it is by definition supernatural. So God immediately heals this man. And what does he do, right? Same thing you'd probably do, right? He's jumping, he's shouting, he's, uh, he's leaping, he follows them in praising God for this wonderful miracle. Well, as you can imagine, this draws a little bit of attention. Look, everybody that was there, or most of the people that was there at that temple that day, they knew who that old boy was. They saw him. They knew that he wasn't some con artist. Or I mean, you just take one look at the lower half of his body and you knew. Right? This wasn't some show. This wasn't some con artist. Con artist. This wasn't some put-on thing. This guy was, couldn't walk. You know, he had no strength in his legs. They saw, they recognized his face, but they did not recognize his legs. They knew something unexplainable had happened and had took place. So what does Peter start to do? Peter starts. Peter looks at him and says, "What are you all amazed about? What are you? Why do you marvel? What? What is? What is it that is so shocking to you about all this? Right? You act like that me or John because of our holiness or our righteousness that we've done this. Oh no, no, it's not us. And he begins. He says, "The God of Abraham." Isaac and Jacob, right? Uh, I, the, fa- the God of our fathers, right? Uh, and then he starts right there and says, his, uh, and his son, his holy child, Jesus, right? He uses that point and he preaches Jesus to him. 
I figure he'd done a pretty good job. He'd done a good enough job to get him and John, and I assume the lame man too, I don't know, it doesn't really say, but anyways, he'd done a good enough job to get them thrown in the slammer for the night. Right? It tells us that some of the Sadducees and the priests and, and the, uh, I forget how it says, the captain of the temple, right? I think that's kind of like the temple garden, right? They didn't like what was happening. They didn't like that he was preaching uh, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? They did not like the message. They did not like the gospel. I got news for you. The world still don't like the gospel. They still doing what they can to stop the gospel message from going out. So, them boys get thrown in jail for the night. They get brought before the Sanhedrin. That would be the, that's the highest court that the Jews had in the land, right? It's not a direct equivalent to, equivalence to our Supreme Court, but you could kind of imagine it that way. They come before them boys the next day, and what are those guys' goal is to get them to shut up. Right? They don't want them preaching Jesus anymore. Look, if they could have, if this thing would have been something that had been hid away and nobody had saw or noticed, I'm sure they would have had John and uh, Peter executed and you know got rid of the, that poor lame man. I mean, they would have covered up every bit of evidence they could. But everybody had seen this great miracle, right? And they were worried. They knew, right, if they didn't handle this just right, they were going to have riots on their hands. If they had riots on their hands, then the Romans was going to step in and there was going to be some more people crucified hanging on crosses out there. It was going to be a bad deal, right? So they're trying to handle this thing. And really what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Peter and John to just shut up about this. Just, you know... Pretend like it didn't happen. Don't preach Jesus no more. And then that's whenever the apostles respond and they say, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Right? That name is Jesus. And he tells them, he said, you decide whether it's better that we obey men or that we obey obey God. But all we can do is talk about the things that we saw and that we've heard. And so anyways, they spent a little more time threatening them. And they sent them on their way. Right? Because there wasn't nothing else they could do, right? All right, that's where the story picks up where I started reading. They come back to where the rest of the believers is. And they recount the story to them. They tell them what has just happened. What we can read about in chapter 3 and the first half of chapter 4. They tell them all about what had happened. And what does the church do? The church lifts their voice together, giving God praise and thanks and glory for everything that he has done. I look at this, and this might not be the first place you'd think about, but I've been talking for a few weeks and we've been going through and preaching about some different revivals that we see that happen throughout the scriptures. Revivals, right? Spiritual wakings. Mighty moves of God where there are people, right? Where, where there are lost people that get saved, right? Where there is people whose faith has been uh, renewed, right? Uh, I, I think it's important as we get ready to go into this revival that we have a good understanding, first of all, of what revival is, right? Um, revival, uh, if you look it up in the dictionary... It is a restoration of life, consciousness, vigor, or strength. 
right? That is just a, that, that's just a Webster's Dictionary definition of revival or, or summary of a Webster's Dictionary definition of revival in general. When we look at revival, when we're talking about the church and we're talking about uh, you know, our spiritual lives, <laughs> uh, revival is the restoring of a spiritual life that is fading, right? <laughs> uh, we stand in need of that. I've quoted to you before what the old preacher said, revival is the church falling in love with Jesus all over again, right? Uh, probably, the, probably the technical, right, the scholarly, scholarly definition of revival is God at work uh, restoring his church to health. Listen to me, there's a lot of uh, Christians today who are not spiritually healthy. That's what we've been trying to talk about. So I I feel like in the scripture, what I want to bring out in the scriptures I read to you this morning is I think there's some necessary ingredients for revival here. I think we see some things happening in the scriptures I read to you that must happen in order for us to have a true heaven-sent revival. Okay. So the first thing that I notice is I notice the unity. Right? You can see that in verse 24. It says, And when they heard that they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. With one accord. Right? If you look over at verse 32, and it says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Right? We see unity there. Right? They were united in mind and in spirit. Listen to me this morning. Revival does not... We, we wonder so often why there's revival efforts, but we don't see any true revival. Revival does not come so often because we want our way instead of God's way, right? They were, they were in one mind, one accord, God's way, whatever God wanted. They were seeking the will of God. They were satisfied with that. It was, in other words, it was not about them. It was about Jesus. You know, in the book of Amos it says, can two walk together except they be agreed? How in the world are we going to, right? We're, we're laboring in our Heavenly Father's field. We're co-laborers with Christ, right? Looking to add souls to the kingdom of God. How can we do that unless we're walking together? How can we do that? How can we accomplish anything unless we be in unity? They were in one accord. They were in one heart, one soul. I think revival often tarries because we're not willing to unite our hearts and our souls and our focus on the mission at hand. Instead, we we approach revival with divided hearts and minds, right? Uh, Do you realize the resistance of of just one person, right, can, can make such a difference right it can make uh, uh, it can bring spiritual defeat in some uh, situations i didn't understand that concept for a long time right ecclesiastes uh, 9:18 said but one sinner destroyeth much good i <clears throat> first church i ever pastored little country church out in the country and uh, they had went from nothing that me or jennifer did it was all what the Lord did, but they had went from one week away from just closing down to pretty full and doing pretty good and having some pretty good services and the Lord moving in a pretty mighty way. 
And I never could understand there was one particular person. They weren't there all the time. Probably not even that often, really. I don't know to this day if they knew or understood how the devil was using them and what they were doing. But that one person walking in, and the spirit could go from here to what happened. What happened? If you had any spiritual discernment whatsoever, could understand, could feel, could detect any of that at all, you know, you didn't have to be one of these super spiritual, you know, really gifted with spiritual discernment. Just have a little bit. Just be able to sense the presence of God. And as a young preacher and young pastor, I couldn't understand that because I kept thinking where the scripture tells us in First John, greater he is in you than he is in the world. And I'm thinking, you know, here we've got 40, 50 people that are just, you know, on fire for the Lord and we have one person, one wet blanket walk, walks in and it just smothers the whole thing out. I don't get it. I don't understand. God requires unity. One soul one mind, one heart. We have got to get together. The church is one body that must be working perfectly together. If we're going to have revival, we must be in unity. And it's really, it's simple, right? It, it, but it's easier said than done, too, right? It's simple as this, right? Just forget about everything else and focus on Jesus. That's it. Just turn your focus to Jesus. Quit worrying about the nonsense and the little stuff and the things that don't matter. I cannot imagine. It is sad. How many churches have been rendered, spiritually speaking, useless because they're divided over things that have no eternal consequence, no eternal matter, right? Whenever everything is burned up and gone and we're gone to be with the Lord in glory, who's going to care what color pews is, what color the carpet is? Who's going to care, right, about all of these things? Do you know how, how we get, how that happens, right? And we get divided over these things. As we start thinking about what I want, what I like, what I prefer. What in the world did Jesus ever say? Find you a group of people that like everything exactly the way that you like it and have the same taste and the same likes that you do. Where, where does the Bible teach us that? Jesus said, we're two or three together, together in my name. There I will be in the midst. Unity. We must have unity. We'll not have any revival until we have come together just like they did. One mind, one soul, one focus, one heart, one voice. Revival doesn't happen so often because we think our agenda is more important than God's agenda. The second thing that I, that I think that is important that we need to know from this is in verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with, with boldness. Don't that sound good to you? 
Don't that sound really good? Right? The place is shaking. Hallelujah. Glory to God. The power of God is moving so strong that you physically feel the ground underneath you shake. Hallelujah. They're all filled with the Holy Ghost. Glory to God. That'd be all right. They were all filled, of, full of the Spirit of God. They all spoke the Word of God with boldness. That, I don't know about you, but that sounds really good to me. But you know what they did first? They prayed. They prayed. There ain't no revival without prayer. We're foolish to expect revival if there is no prayer for revival. Why do you think, you know, I was looking at things coming up um, on the next two weeks, right? This week we're getting ready to enter into and the week after that. You just might as well figure you're going to be in church every night. Right? I mean, tomorrow night there's not anything, but Tuesday night we've got our business meeting. Wednesday night we're having, uh, we've got a, our Bible study and it's going to be on prayer. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night we're having a prayer meeting. We've been calling it prayer revival, but it ain't nothing more than a good old-fashioned prayer meeting. We're coming together, we're having a prayer meeting leading right up to our revival kicking off on Sunday. And then we've got revival for the next six nights after that. And I'm telling you, that is why it is we are looking for, we're serious about a move of God. We're looking for a move of God. And we're not so foolish as to expect there to be a move of God with what we don't get on our knees before God first. And we need to do it in one mind, in one heart, in one accord, in, in, in unity. You know, somebody, uh, Harrietta, Harrietta, I think is how you say her name, Myers, once famously said, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Scriptures tells us in James that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That means that if you're right with God, your prayers actually make a difference. But so often today, we're not interested in really praying, right? People don't cry out to God anymore. Where are the tear-stained altars at anymore? What happened to the good old-fashioned prayer meetings, right? We want an outward display of revival without doing the praying that it takes to have revival. I want to encourage you, church. Jennifer had mentioned a while ago, we've got those prayer packets we put together, so you kind of got an idea of what to expect. There's some things in there, right, to you know, place this between you and the Lord, but to write down people who you're praying for, for salvation, place for needs in your life, place for needs in our church. These are the things that you don't share them with anybody. It's between you and God, but you've got them written down there so you can look at them and so that you can pray over them. And we're going to come together, right? You, you need to be praying about those things and praying over those things right now. And we're going to come together, right? We're going to make a physical show of coming together in one place and lifting up our voices and praying just like they did here. See what if God won't shake the ground one more time? See what God won't move one more time? I think he's willing. I think he's just waiting on us, church. I think he's just waiting on us. Something else that I want to point out, and I, I'm going to hurry and quit here, is the people that are needed for revival. I like how it says in verse uh, 23, in verse 23 it says, in being let go, they went to their own company. Right? There's a distinction between their own company and the rest of this. And reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. 
If you look at verse 29, maybe it's a little clearer. And now, and now Lord, behold, their threatenings, right? Their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants. See the two different groups of people there, the there and the thy. And the thy grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Listen. There's a unity that's needed for, for revival. There's prayer that's needed for revival. There's also a certain people that's needed for revival. And that's you and I. Right? We look at our land and, and we think, oh, you know, we need revival. We need turning back to God. But understand, it does not start in, in the White House in Washington, D.C. or Capitol Hill or anywhere like that. It starts with you and I. Right? That's why uh, in Second Chronicles seven fourteen it says, If my people which are called by my name, right? It's talking about us. We're the people that is needed for revival, right? Uh, we want, and the problem is, is we want the God of the revival without having the revival itself. We want the change the revival brings without making any changes ourselves, right? And, and listen to me, as long as we dress like the world and we act like the world and we talk like the world, all we can expect is a revival of the world, when you read this and study this, these were a peculiar people. They, stu- they stood out. Actually, in the, in the events leading up to here, they made a pretty good scene. They were known. It seems like we want the peculiar fruit of God without being peculiar ourselves. We live in a day and time in a culture where it's actually actively taught by some of the churches and some of the uh, supposed leaders of the church that we should that, that we should blend in with the rest of the world, right? That way they're, they're comfortable to come in. We act like them, we talk like them, we dress like them, we look like them. You know, next thing you know, you think like them too. And if you do that, then you know what? You'll go to hell with them too. Believers... If you're truly a believer, you ought to stand out from the world. There ought to be some difference. There ought to be a distinction, right? Believers ought to be distinct in their lives, in their speech, the way they talk, the way they dress, the way they live. We want the power of revival without facing the opposition, right? As soon as you start to stand out, as soon as you become the peculiar people he's called you to be, you're going to face some opposition, right? I, I like when they're talking about it, according to Psalms 2, and they say the heathen rage, right? As this whole Supreme Court thing has happened, have you not heard the heathen rage? We want the power of the revival without facing the opposition that comes with it. Listen to me, I want a mighty move of God and hell and the devil himself is going to throw everything that he's got against it. Let him come on. Maybe the most important thing is the person that's needed for revival. Verse 27 says, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed. Right? The revival... The center of any revival must be Jesus Christ himself. He is the one person that is needed.
for revival. If the focus is on anything else, revival will not come, right? If the focus is on anywhere else but on Jesus, right? Revival is not about making a church bigger. It's about making the kingdom of God bigger. Jesus is the only person that is actually needed for revival. That might, you might go, well, yeah, that's a duh statement. But no, listen. So often we get to thinking we got to have, right, you know, either maybe it's the people we've invited and we just feel like if they don't come or we think that a certain preacher or certain singers or a certain whatever, you know, that we can't have revival unless those certain people show up. Baloney. The only one that's needed is Jesus. If Jesus shows up, you can have revival. Hallelujah. So that's why. That's the one that we've got to seek until he shows up. Let me point out something else to you. I read verse 31 a while ago, but let me read it again. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Right? Let's talk for a second about the place where revival happens. Right? The revival happened in the place where they were assembled together. Right? Revival is not in the building. It's in the hearts of those who are gathered together in the building. Right? And and, and let me say this when I say about a heart. Right? Jeremiah uh, 17.9 warns us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately Wicked, right? Uh, Revival so often does not come because we're unwilling. We're unwilling to make room for it in our hearts. We're unwilling to do what it takes. We're unwilling to seek the Lord until He shows up. We're unwilling, right, to, to, to give our hearts and our minds and our souls to this one cause and to be knitted together in Christ. We're unwilling, right, to do what it takes to have revival. We're unwilling. To, to face the things that come along with it, right? We're, I don't know what we're afraid of. If we're afraid of losing a friend, if we're fa- afraid of facing real opposition, I don't know. But we're unwilling. And let me just finish with this one last thing. Verse 33. There's a reason why I read all the way to verse 33. Because it says, With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Let me remind you quickly of the purpose of revival. It's to give witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's to give witness, right? It is to give witness to the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive. Everything we should do, or everything we do, should be for the end goal of bringing glory to God and to add souls to the kingdom of God. But revival at its heart is really about getting the Christians revived. And as the Christians begin to get revived, that's when we begin to see them do what God has called them to do. And we begin to see them witness with power the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, we, and then people can't help but begin to get saved whenever that begins to happen. Revival brings a change to our hearts. Revival brings a renewed interest in telling people about Jesus. Revival brings a fire in our souls that motivates us to actually get out and do something for the Lord, to actually tell somebody about Jesus, to actually, uh, to actually take our relationship with God seriously. Revival brings a hunger 
through the Word of God. Right? We'll begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness again, right? We'll begin to look forward to our time where we get into the Word of God and we've got that personal, close, intimate time with our Lord in His Word. We'll begin to hunger for His Word again. It brings a desire to go to church. It's no longer a duty or, a, or something to be checked off a list or, okay, I've done it this week, I'm good for a while or whatever. No, no, no. We begin to have a desire again, right? A want to, right? A longing, right? I feel like that we can't go through the week unless we come and we gather and we worship the Lord together with other believers. So there are something spiritually, a strength that we draw that we cannot get any other way. And revival brings a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. Do you realize there is a lost and dying world? Do you realize there's people who are dying and going to a devil's hell every day? I've often said, give me just a second, Jennifer. I've often said one of the greatest tricks the devil's pulled is to convince people that he's not real, that he doesn't exist. Do you know we live in a time that, hey, I don't know the statistics. It wouldn't surprise me if it was half. I don't know. I hope it's not that large. But there's a large part of even the church. I don't expect the world to believe that hell is real or that heaven's real either, right? They're lost. They don't have any faith, right? I don't expect them to believe. But God's made it clear in His Word. Jesus talks about hell more than any other, any other person that we have with their words recorded there in the Scriptures. I heard Brother Danny Ledbetter say one time in a revival. He was preaching on the the rich man Lazarus. He said, if God would just open the ground up for just a moment, us peek over into the edge. He said, we would still see a rich man who'd been clothed in purple, still reaching out, begging, right, for somebody just to go to his brothers and tell them, warn them of this place. Wondered how many people. Right throughout time have, have, have scoffed at the idea of hell. Who now, right? Too many like that rich, like that rich man become a believer when it's too late. There is people, these people I'm talking about that are, that are dying and going to a devil's hell every day. These are, your, these are your friends, your neighbors, your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, right? The people you interact with every day. These are people that you care about. This is not just some number saying some far off place. I've often said, and I'm going to say it one last time and then Jennifer can start to play. If you were the first one out of here, here in just a minute, and you're the first one out, and you're heading out, and you see that the overpass is out up here, and you can't tell it until you're right on it, and you almost ran off of it. Other people have already run off of it. What would you do? Would you say, I'm glad I can go down the outer road a little ways and get out on the highway and head on and get, try and beat everybody to the restaurant? No, you wouldn't. 
you'd turn your old car sideways in the road down here and you'd do everything you could. You'd jump out in front of a moving car to try to stop people from running over the edge. We're talking about physical life there. How much more serious? How much more serious when we're talking about eternity in their soul? We're asking you to pray for people who are lost. We're asking you to invite them to come to the revival. Let me leave you with this one last thought. How much would you have, knowing what I've just said, assuming that you actually believe what the Bible says about hell, if you truly believe what the Word of God says, how much would you have to hate somebody to not even at least pray for them? To not even at least maybe pick up the phone and say, hey, would you come with me this week? Would you go just one night with me? How much would you have to hate somebody to at least not make some effort to stop by and maybe share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, to, to try to share some scripture, to do something? How much would you hate, have to hate somebody to make no effort whatsoever? Would you stand to your feet? I want to open the altar and I want to give you a chance to come this morning. Spirit of God dealing with you, would you come this morning? If you've got a need, if you've got a burden, would you come this morning? If you'd just like to come and pray, would you come and pray this morning? Whatever the need is here, whatever the burden is, don't miss this opportunity. Would you come this morning? Would you come?